Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic. Today, I'm on location. I'm attending the conference, Advancing the Science of Cancer in Latinos, in San Antonio, Texas. Just to set up the mood and to put a little bit in perspective, well, we are here in, you know, Latino Hispanic Focus Research Meeting, and we all have heard about, you know, the health disparities and difficulties the Latinos and and not, this does not exclude the young, you know, the children, young adults and adolescents. And I'm going to you know, kind of mention a few things like, you know, it's well known since 2010, 12, that Lina Berry and et al. just mentioned that if we put all the cancer together, you know, the children, adolescents, and young adults are surviving or are living five-year-old survival lower than the contract part, not Hispanics, by, you know, 73 against 81%. So that is a striking difference for me at least, considering that we all sharing that kind of common goals. Just to expand, I mean, when we talk about children, I even learned from my hematology oncology program that the first thing that you can think of a Hispanics is ALL, who has, uh, you know, a higher, 15 to 40% reported higher incidence of ALL, and even higher if you start to account for kind of the country of origin like Mexico and Costa Rica. Particularly, those, and I'm not going to say the word Native Americans, but those indigenous American of the Americas have a higher uh, incidence or a higher uh, problem. And for me personally, I carry that burden still. I am a medical oncologist at the University of Arizona, urinary, so I do testicular cancer. And it is not surprising to us, my surgeons and oncologists, that we are seeing a more aggressive and higher mortality in testicular cancer among Hispanics. And it has been reported. It's about 1.4 times higher than non-Hispanics. So it gives me pleasure to, to have these sessions to talk about children, young adults, adolescents, and young adults. Dr. Grimes? Thank you for that introduction. Um, so we're going to spend the first 20 minutes just focusing on common treatment-related toxicities that we see in pediatric cancer with a focus on the vulnerable Hispanic population and uh, some of the increased toxicities experienced by um, his, our Hispanic minority patients. I don't have any disclosures or, or conflicts of interest uh, to review. And we'll focus um, kind of on that uh, summary uh, that I mentioned with a specific emphasis on Hispanic children. So we're going to start with setting the stage. Where are we now? What really is incredible is that over the decades, since about the mid-1970s until today, pediatric cancer survival has dramatically improved year upon year. And you can see that demonstrated in the bar graph um, over here to the right, both for younger children age 0 to 14 and for um, older teens. If you go all the way up to 19, that's demonstrated in the blue 
the younger kids are in the orange. Um, for all children and adolescents, you see significant year-upon-year um, -year increases in that overall survival. So that's the good news. The, the challenging components to that news is that it's not all good for all patients or to the same degree. And what I mean by that is that there still are significant survival disparities for uh, minority patients, particularly Hispanic children, Black children, um, for those with lower socioeconomic status, and for children that are treated in underserved areas. We also see, as was just mentioned in the introduction, that Hispanic children have a higher incidence of several types of cancers over non-Hispanic children. Leukemia and lymphoma are two good examples of that. And we also see a lower overall survival in Hispanic children uh, for some cancers as well. We know that Hispanic kids have more frequent and more severe treatment-related toxicities with some of the common key drugs that are really critical in inducing remission in pediatric cancer, and we'll explore a little bit more in detail what those are. Overall, though, survival improvements over time are driven through large, multi-center, consortium-based um, trials. These are trials that are aimed to improve how we stratify risk in kids, pluck out higher-risk and lower-risk kids to modify treatment exposures, various uh, variations in treatment intensity, um, and, of course, um, supportive care trial interventions that are aimed to reduce toxicity. And we'll explore this together as well. Um, so at this point, because pediatric cancer survival has improved, those kids are living longer with the late effects and the cumulative late effects of the therapies that they received to clear their disease. Because of that, Treatment-related toxicities really contribute to the morbidity that we see in this survivor population um, and mortality in some patients. It's really important that we have accurate, systematic ways to capture both short-term and late-term toxicities of therapy. Many of you are familiar with the CTCAE system of adverse event capture, but also the identification of adverse events and the reporting of adverse events um, doesn't happen to the same degree for all patients and at all centers. We know that there are problems with this, um, and we'll see this play out in some of the data that I'm going to share in a moment. Um, so we need more quality, large, multi-center trials to determine if certain approaches can reduce risk of some of the specific treatment-related toxicities that we see. Um, but there are some challenges. There's less funding for supportive care trials than for therapeutic trials. For one, not all children have access to supportive care trials depending on the center where they're treated. And this graphic here is really just meant to demonstrate the fact that there are many factors that all contribute to these late effects or late toxicities that pediatric cancer survivors experience. Some of them are survivor-related factors like self-efficacy, access to survivorship resources, um, even insurance status, and others are factors that are related to the treating provider. And those can be things like the experience, knowledge, or education of that particular oncologist in survivorship care or monitoring for late effects, the 
access that that provider or treating facility has in survivorship resources, supportive care trials as well. Other things that we know fall into play include some genetic factors that increase vulnerability for certain treatment-related acute and late effects. There may be factors related to the cancer itself, um, events that occurred during cancer treatment, and then other host factors and health behaviors that can um, accelerate some of the, the end organ toxicities that may have started as a result of treatment, but be accelerated, for example, because of tobacco use or heavy alcohol exposure and other lifestyle-based choices. So we can think about this in a couple of different ways. First, by organ system. Um, so what you're looking at here on the left is um, organ system like brain, eye, ear, and the associated toxicity. So neurocognitive deficits, for example, with the brain end organ that are related to certain drug exposures during treatment that are listed on the right. So methotrexate or cytarabine, whether it's delivered intrathecally or systemically, are highly associated with neurocognitive deficits. Another example would be platinum-based therapies, carboplatin, cisplatin, listed here on the right, that are highly associated with impairment in hearing. That can be an acute effect and also cumulative over time. We also know that anthracyclines, and this is dose-dependent, are heavily associated with cardiomyopathy and a significant number of survivors. So then when you think about the treatment exposures, many of these agents are key agents in inducing remission for Ewing sarcoma, ALL, AML, osteosarcoma, and many of these agents are used across uh, treatment plans um, for those various diagnoses. Even though we do have access to some more novel therapies in pediatric cancer care in general, like incorporating immunotherapies, for example, into upfront uh, treatment trials. Still, the majority of children are treated with standard chemotherapy regimens that include mostly these agents listed here with a long-standing cumulative knowledge of end-organ effects and toxicities from those agents. So it's a double-edged sword. You can also think about late effects or treatment toxicities by cancer type. So if you're treating a population of children with ALL, for example, or with Ewing sarcoma, both of which uh, standard treatment regimens include anthracycline therapies, cardiomyopathy then is going to be a potential late effect that needs to be monitored in that patient. And in fact, which the vast majority of patients that received those therapies will likely develop at some point in their lifetime. Then if you look at patients with a history of Hodgkin lymphoma, for example, where standard treatment reg regimens historically included um, large doses of glucocorticoids, vinca alkaloids. Um, we know glucocorticoids have an impact on bone mineral density. Vinca alkaloids have an impact on the development of peripheral or sensory neuropathies. Then that's going to be at risk for those patients. But it's really drug-specific. And you can see some of these drug classes that appear in the standard treatment regimens of several of these other common pediatric cancers.
the late effects then are the same. So what are we looking at here other than smattering of colors? Um, I'm going to break down this data for you. So on the, the y-axis here, you're looking at the cumulative burden of individual uh, toxicities by organ system. And each organ system is designated by a different color. Secondary neoplasms are in gray, for example. Cardiovascular late effects are in red, for example. And then along the x-axis is primary diagnosis by age strata. So that means that these, this is a cohort of childhood cancer survivors that are now in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And so you have this data represented in three bars at a time for each of those decades of life. You have the first set of three bars, which are your controls. So general population in their 30s, first bar, 40s, second bar, 50s, third bar, um, that don't have a history of a childhood cancer. And then all the next sets of three bars all the way to the end are um, different uh, primary cancer types in those survivors, ALL, AML, Hodgkin's. And so then you can see that for the first grouping of bars after the control, that's ALL, that with increasing age, 30s and then 40s is the second bar, and then 50s is the third bar, of course there's going to be increasing cumulative grade three to five or advanced grade chronic health conditions. And that makes sense. We all have more health problems as we age. And you see cumulative chronic health conditions in the controls. But what I want the takeaway to be is how many more and how much more severe each of these organ system related more advanced toxicities are in childhood cancer survivors, regardless of their primary diagnosis, when compared to the controls. And you see the largest number of chronic health conditions, especially represented here. So these are CNS, so brain tumor um, childhood cancer survivors. Um, also here, bone tumor survivors, Hodgkin survivors, AML survivors, and retinoblastoma survivors. There are multiple factors that influence some of the disparities that we see in chronic health conditions that disproportionately affect our Hispanic childhood cancer survivors. And what this is demonstrating are some of the risk modulators, meaning within His Hispanic childhood cancer survivors, um, there are some additional factors that further increase the risk in those Hispanic children for certain types of toxicities. Um, some of those include pubertal status in a Hispanic cancer survivor may further increase the likelihood or risk for vitamin D deficiency, for example, um, or socioeconomic status may further increase the risk for subsequent neoplasms or for risk of endocrine conditions after treatment for Hispanic cancer survivors. Then if you look at some specific conditions, Ewing sarcoma, for example, there are disparities that we see in Hispanic children with Ewing's 
that disproportionately affect this population compared to non-Hispanic children with the same diagnosis. Um, and what you're looking at here are the higher grade, grade three, four toxicities. And we see a higher incidence in Ewing sarcoma patients of advanced grade toxicities during cancer treatment for Ewing's. If those patients were younger, less than 12 at the time of diagnosis, Latino ethnicity, low family income, and interestingly, treatment on a clinical trial is listed here. And it's thought that the reason for this conclusion from this data is that children that are enrolled in clinical trials, treating centers adhere to adverse event reporting much more closely than for kids that are not treated on clinical trial. So then it looks like the kids treated on clinical trials have more AEs, but the AE reporting was significantly higher even for all of the low-grade toxicities among that cohort as well, just to demonstrate that we don't do a great job with AE capture. And probably the most published data on increased treatment toxicities in Hispanic children with cancer is in acute lymphoblastic leukemia. I've included some examples here. In CAR T-cell therapy, Hispanic kids have more severe cytokine release syndrome, which can be a devastating complication that occurs with CAR T and other immunotherapies. High-dose methotrexate, um, we know that particularly renal toxicity, when high-dose methotrexate is administered, occurs uh, much more often in Hispanic kids. And when renal toxicity occurs, for kids that have greater impairment in renal function or higher serum creatinine elevation, they um, also experience a six-fold increase in neurotoxicity. So it's like a domino effect, and there are some compounded toxicities um, for those patients. For corticosteroid exposures, non-white minorities have more severe hyperglycemia and are more likely to require insulin. And then for asparaginase therapies, um, which is a key agent in ALL therapy, Hispanic ethnicity is a strong predictor of hepatotoxicity as well. Pancreatitis is described uh, more often uh, in Hispanic children, and this is thought to be related to more risk alleles for pancreatitis that have been identified in Hispanic children with ALL. So there are multiple strategies to reduce toxicity in pediatric cancer, like reducing therapy, using less toxic drugs, except we just identified that CAR-T can be problematic for Hispanic children. Um, pharmacogenomics that drive dosing decisions, so identifying uh, certain features from a pharmacogenomic standpoint that may lead to reducing the dose up front for certain medications like mercaptopurine and ALL, and more supportive care trials that are intervention-based and that also help improve adherence to supportive care guidelines or identify high-risk patients so interventions can be risk-based. Um, we're running short on time, so I'm just going to move very quickly in the next two minutes to comment on um, how this information should really encourage us to uh, propel the enthusiasm, the funding, and the activity around designing supportive care interventions that target treatment toxicities in pediatric cancer and that are accessible to our Hispanic patients. We, through the Cancer Control um, Committee at the Children's Oncology Group, are working on the development of one concept that evaluates the impact of continuous glucose monitoring on glycemic control on pediatric and AYA-ALL. 
Um, I'm not going to read through the background, but treatment-related hyperglycemia is really common and it's seen more often in non-white uh, minority patients. And so we're developing a concept to utilize continuous glucose monitoring as an intervention to improve glycemic control and ALL therapy so that improved glycemic control can also improve adverse outcomes that are associated with sustained hyperglycemia and therapy. So I'll, I'll move through the design schema. But so essentially, currently, we've just activated a local pilot that's evaluating the feasibility and tolerability of continuous glucose monitoring in children with ALL, which will disproportionately enroll Hispanic children. And this pilot is activated here in San Antonio. Those results then will be incorporated into the larger study that I was just mentioning um, at the children's oncology group level and in partnership with our adult consortia. So study committee. And I'm happy to take questions, which I believe are at the end. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much for the presentation. It was it's fascinating and incredibly important work. I'm Abby. I'm a research director at Cancer Support Community, and we provide psychosocial support free of cost across the nation at our Gildas Club and CSC locations. And we're working right now on, on a young adult survivorship program for those who are between the ages of 18 and 35. From a life course perspective, that's a huge age range. I mean, even 15 to 39, the AYA population is incredibly diverse and they're facing different challenges. From your perspective, how do we wrangle with the heterogeneity in this population and also do a good service to mitigate the physical toxicities and the psychosocial toxicities that linger for survivors? Involve survivors in your design. I think it's it's hard, right? You described that problem and it's like <gasps> unsurmountable. But that is the that that's a real challenge that that we're facing. And yes, there's significant age-based differences in the needs that AYA survivors have, but not patients are at different life stages across those age groups. So you might have a 19-year-old that already has two kids at home and is a single mom and also trying to work and navigating survivorship care services. And a 30-year-old that it maybe doesn't have children, is married, and maybe has a huge community of support. The, the needs are going to be really different for those folks, um, education-based, work-based, et cetera. And so, you know, I, I would argue that we shouldn't assume that certain needs will be present at certain ages because life stage can vary so much across that population. But an individualized approach as we're designing survivorship care services, resources, and access is definitely needed. And I think our patients probably have the answers more than we we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode.